internet friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I make all big decisions with a D20. With me is... <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and I appreciate art. Aw. Aw. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah, and I own a piece of a dinosaur bone that is framed in my bathroom. What? Huh. Cool. <laughs> Why yeah. there? Because it looks nice in there. I guess it does. Fair enough. Yeah. This is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes. We all start on the same page on Wikipedia, and we use hyperlinks within the article to click around until we find something metrically interesting that we cannot stop reading. Almost always, this means that we have either learned something completely new or we have taken a really deep dive into something that was just completely unprecedented for the day. Today, we started off on demonology, which, as you can imagine, was very difficult to stray from. At least personally, a (laughs) radius of about five clicks was still like really in the vicinity. I had to work very hard. Me too. Where did everybody end up? Well, I ended up on the term Philosopher's Stone. Oh! I always wondered why they call it that. I'm guessing it's not Harry Potter. That's the Sorcerer's Stone, you dango. Oh, shit. No, no, it's not, Drew. It's the Philosopher's Stone, right? Yeah, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It depends depends what country you bought the book in. Oh. Australia Beach. Oh, well, uh, I am corrected. well, well. (laughs) <laughs> we are already learning facts. Sarah, where did you end up? I ended up on psychopomp or death personification. Fucking cool. Oh, fuck yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. So cool. Where did you end up, Lindsay? I landed on... Actually, can we talk for a minute about the path that I took? <laughs> yes. can, I, can I first tell you all the places I didn't go? <laughs> yes. I somehow got into Waldorf schools, which are like alternative like forms of, of education. Then I ended up in the magazine's Better Home and Gardens. <laughs> oh, okay. Then I got into <laughs> Phantom Limb Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got into Love Triangles and Sexologists. But finally, I landed on an individual by the name of Herculean Barbin. Wow, that is a wild path. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I worked very hard to get away from demonology. <laughs> <laughs> I did not work that hard. I was just like demons, afterlife, <laughs> sucker bumps. <laughs> well, it sounds like your topics together. So we've got we've got death personification, and if I had to guess, Drew, yours sounds slightly alchemical. You bet it's alchemical. Fuck yes. So mine is posed to. Le- and sort of in ancient history. So maybe we could do Mind Drew Sarah. Yeah, I'm cool with that. I think I think that works. Before we begin, though, we have to start with the question of the week, which <laughs> this week's question is, what is your favorite NPC character or side character? So, Lindsay, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Um, I'll at first say... I think we should do guests first. Okay. We have a few submissions from Twitter. And if you would also like to be featured on the show, you can always follow us on Twitter. Go ask Alice Pod, where I post the question of the week. I love reading everybody's responses, and it's been a really fun way to make friends. So I will say that one of our dear friends, Skink Mom, uh, <laughs> posted her thirst trap, her husband, 
Claude Von Regan of Fire Emblem. <laughs> he looks pretty handsome. He's got dark hair and blue eyes, and he's pulling a bow and arrow. I've never played Fire Emblem, so I don't appreciate how hot he is. <laughs> Like personality wise, is Fire Emblem a video game? Yes, I'm guessing. yeah, it's a strategy yes. game. Okay, cool. Well, I love I love attractive video game characters. This is what got me into Assassin's Creed back in the day. <laughs> I was Ooh. fiercely attracted to the to the assassins. Ooh, all the acrobatics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a. <laughs> Another one of our friends on Twitter, his name is Ben, but his username is Get Lefty. So I don't know if that's a dance move or a command. (laughs) (laughs) But he said that his favorite is Shoot Me in the Face Guy from Borderlands 2, which is amazing because I did, I just Googled who that is and the character's name is Face McShooty. (laughs) (laughs) He is a psycho from Borderlands 2. And can I say, I... This is dangerously close to my favorite NPC. (laughs) My favorite, favorite NPC of all time is Tiny Tina, also from Borderlands. Oh, yes. Yes. So Tiny Tina is a young girl who specializes in this post-apocalyptic waste. Or no, I think it's just another planet. This, This sort of... Yeah. yeah, this wasteland of a place. She specializes in explosives. She loves to have tea parties and blow them up. And I love Tiny Tina so much that I had adopted cats a long time ago with uh, my now ex-boyfriend. And we named one of our cats Tiny Tina because she was the runt of the litter. Aww. But she was still a little murder fiend. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. I love Tiny Tina. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I love it. What do you guys have? Well, mine mine requires a picture just to get the full the full image of this character. Yes, please. So this is my favorite character. He is known okay. as the Toilet Hand in Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. And it's a hand <laughs> that begs for paper in the toilet. And it's just a hand? <laughs> it's just a hand and he begs for paper. Any kind of paper you will give him, he'll accept it. He gives you a heart piece for it. And when you give him paper, he gives you a thumbs up and goes, yay! Wow. (laughs) But the implications of having a toilet hand just kind of freaked me out as a kid. I was going to say, I'd be so scared. What if he just reaches up while I'm going to the bathroom? Like, what what do I do? Do I pull him out? Like, what do I do? Drew, I was <laughs> literally, I, I was about to say, I'm so glad I didn't play this as a kid because that would have scared me. <laughs> wow. Oh, and you'll also notice on this bathroom, there's no door. It's just like an open bathroom. And you just walk in and there's this hand that hangs out and just like, give me paper, please. And oh, God, what a, what a character. I love him. <laughs> That is my worst fear, though, if you are, like, in a public toilet and you need to become the hand. Like, if you go to the public toilet and oh, you have I... toilet paper in your stall. <laughs> you're like, please. That's paper. not. Please, can anyone spare a, squ- spare a square? That is not what wow. I thought you I can't meant. spare a square. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's, Drew, that is A++, million plus. That is Million plus. Toilet hand. Toilet hand from Legend of Zelda. It's great. That's wonderful. 
That's wow, amazing. yeah. I cannot, I cannot. <laughs> What's yours, Sarah? <laughs> Mine would be the Creeper from Minecraft. And I, have you guys played that? The Creeper is the big oh, penis. Of course, penis yeah. looking thing that explodes if you get too close to it. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, I, oh my I've God. never thought of it as phallic looking. And I, I, um, hello, it looks like a giant, it does egg. not. <laughs> it Wait, does. Is this, is this yeah. the zombie thing? It's like a hedge. I don't know what it's meant to be. Let me send you a picture. There, squ- aren't these all squares? Don't, doesn't everything Just, in Minecraft I've look the same? Picture. Tell me that does not look like a, a phallic shape. How did they manage to make a phallic shape out of blocks? <laughs> I know, but on that, in that, in this realm, just any of the characters in Minecraft, like the the piggies and oh, just all of them are just so cute. I love them. <laughs> so you just like Minecraft? Yeah, I like Minecraft. <laughs> I, you know, it's never a competition, but I would say, Sarah, that yours definitely is up there with Drew's. I think that these are both really good. I'm glad I went first. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Should we dive right into our topics yes, then? Yes, please. Yes, absolutely. So Herculean Barbin is the individual that I want to talk about. And just to give a brief overview of actually what my topic means or where I went after, I actually spread into about like six different wiki articles and then did additional Googling. <laughs> wow. You get an A+. <laughs> I went all over the place um, trying to learn as much as I could because I was I was right out fascinated. So, you know, the whole purpose of, I think, doing this show is to learn new things about things that you didn't know about. And so prior to this excursion, I had never heard of an intersex individual. Um, Obviously, I've, you know, heard of like transgender and um, transsexual, and I guess I never actually knew the difference. Do you guys know the difference between sex and gender before we even get into it? That's one hell of a question. (laughs) Yeah. I think mm. I I think I do. Okay. Because I think gender is more, uh, what in how I see it is gender is more of a personal identity, and how you yes. feel, whereas sex is um, more of a scientific. We're going to try assign you a sex based on what is in your chromosomes. That is a beautiful way to phrase it. That is so much better yeah. than what I had Thank even written you. down. That is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, because I think gender is super fluid. Yes. And sex is just, it's an analytical thing to do with your DNA. So what's actually really fascinating that I learned, I did not know before this whole conversation, is that I should have known, being a scientist, that there are never neat piles to put things in. Oh, yeah. So uh, Oh, never. <laughs> I was definitely <laughs> familiar with gender being a spectrum, but maybe after this, you will reconsider whether or not you think that sex is straightforward. However, that distinction that you made before about it being um, more of like a scientific definition and then a, um, you know, personal. Um, how did you phrase it? You phrased it so well. What did you just say? Uh, like a personal identity. Yes. A per- yes. 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 Um, that is basically the distinction that I, I had to look up because I was like, okay, what's the difference between transsexual and uh, transgender? But exactly. Exactly. So awesome. So what I actually ended up educating myself about is what does it mean to be intersex? What is intersex? And how 
have intersex individuals lived throughout history. Like, you know, yeah. I'm 20, 20 X years old, not going to say it. <laughs> and this is my first time. Like, I was like, damn, I should have learned about this a lot sooner. Right. So, um, I feel like for me, this touched on so many areas that I find interesting. I love learning how everyday people lived their lives, especially way back when. So we're going to talk. Um, Herculean Barbin lived in the Victorian era. She lived in the 1800s. We're going to talk about ancient history, ancient medical history, ancient laws. We're going to go all through it. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. Where to start? I guess starting with the definition of intersex probably is a good place. I feel like, Drew, I'm going to start off with defining my terms. Yeah, do it. (laughs) So I'm going to read straight from amnesty.org because I assume that these people um, have thought very hard about this definition. So intersex is an umbrella term used to describe a wide range of natural variations that affect genitals, gonads, hormones, chromosomes, or reproductive organs. Sometimes these characteristics are visible at birth, sometimes they appear at puberty, and sometimes they are not physically apparent at all. Hmm. So what this means is, if somebody is intersex, it could mean that they are born with both male and female genitalia on the outside of their body. It could mean that they have both testicles and a uterus inside their body because sometimes um, these areas don't fully develop. It could mean that you have an extra X or Y chromosome. It could mean a whole host of different things. So do some of these sound familiar already? I feel like these kind of crop up now and then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Any genetics class, we talk about these a lot. Really? Yeah. I would love to hear Dr. Drew's um, genetics take on all of this. Take not a doctor. Just Drew just grabs the microphone. Not, not a doctor. A doctor. <laughs> um, so what I also thought was so incredibly fascinating is that being intersex is not rare. Hmm. I remember learning about this. I think it was in one of my university classes. Because there's, like, I feel like, well, at least in modern society, you don't really, like, I feel like we're not taught about gender or sexuality or um, just sex in general as well as we should be in in a schooling level, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Like everything seems black and white, but it certainly is Absolutely. Not. No, and it's it's very interesting because I think that, in many respects, it's something that you learn on your own, either through experimentation or, you know, just like introspective thought. But at the same time, because we don't talk about it, like, you know, what if I'm intersex? I have no idea. And I think that I'm the only person in the world who has this condition. I know it must be heartbreaking for people not to realize that they're not alone. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that nowadays we've got the entire internet in front of us. There is so <laughs> much that we can learn, so much that we can educate ourselves. So I was actually, you know, very, very happy to now have this information, um, at least in my, my own knowledge and repertoire. And so I hope that maybe, you know, one of you, not necessarily you two, but <laughs> one of you listening, um, maybe also learn something new. So 
getting back into um, sort of some statistics, being intersex is actually not rare. So again, according to amnesty.org, 1.7% of the population is born with intersex traits. Remember, this was a big umbrella term. So it may not necessarily be like, oh, I have both a penis and a vagina, but it could mean like, you know, the chromosomes or any of these. 1.7% of the population is comparable to the number of people born with red hair. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. I have a neighbor who has red hair. So I wonder if I have a neighbor who is intersex. None of my fucking business, but (laughs) it's about those statistics. No, it's so interesting. I can just imagine you knocking on people's door. Hi, are you intersex? Like, (laughs) well, so this is what I was saying. Like, literally, I was like, without the internet, how would I have ever learned about this? Like, I, you know, again, like it's, it's nobody's fucking business. And that's what's so, I think creates so much of attention is like here, we're going to learn about some of the history of things that are nobody's fucking business. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, we really owe it to these incredible individuals who come forward with their stories. um, And especially on the internet, I'm sure that there are just many places that, um, especially actually according to amnesty.org, um, one of the myths that they were trying to kind of, you know, dispel and knock out of the park is that in, intersex people don't exist. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's just, it's false. You know, there, there are people who are actively speaking out about being intersex. There are like uh, resources available for people to have these conversations with other intersex people. So you're not alone. Yeah. Absolutely not alone. And it's so important just not only for a mental health perspective, just for a physical health perspective as well to understand what your body is and what your body is doing and how to best treat your body. Oh, yeah. No matter no Absolute, matter what type of body yeah. you've got, you've got to know, you know, what type of things are important to look out for. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. Exactly. Care exactly. for your bodies. <laughs> so We only got one. <laughs> So getting back to Herculean Barbin, I keep I keep giving teasers, but I, I haven't actually gotten into her story. So I'm so excited for her story. She sounds like a badass already. She is a badass. There, this is so she, her article is the one that really hooked me on this this wild journey, and um, I'll just, I'll just get right into it. So Herculean Barbin was born intersex in the year 1838. So I said this is kind of like a Victorian era sort of case yeah. and so when she was born again these are a lot of things that we're going to talk about where it's nobody's business but unfortunately when you're a baby nobody respects what's your business <laughs> yeah. so she was born and the doctor that uh she was born to or birthed her i suppose uh assigned her female was like looked at looked at what was before them and they were like yep this is, this is a female so <laughs> yep. the family raised uh, Herculean Barbin as a female and named her Alexina. So her whole life she goes as Alexina. She grew up really poor, but ended up earning a scholarship to study in a convent. So she goes to a convent and she falls cool. in love with a female classmate because convents are all female. Aww, and they, they love. Yeah, falls in love, starts sneaking around. Sneaky, oh, sneak. you do it, girl. You go sneaky, sneaky. I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would be the worst, the worst poster child for the Catholic Church. <laughs> You'd be, I imagine you as like an, an RA in a convent and like, you know. The, <laughs> you, say, you say a few extra Hail Marys when you get home, okay? <laughs> oh, 
Uh, they wouldn't let me in the doors. They would know that I'm a heathen. <laughs> so um, I'm going to refer to her as Alexina for the beginning part of this story. Alexina yep. graduates at 17 and goes in the year 1856 to study to become a teacher, falls in love with one of her teachers. She's just a romance machine. Um, falls in love with one of her teachers, graduates in 1857, and becomes an assistant teacher at a uh, all-girls school, and falls in love with another teacher there named Sarah. Ooh. Can attest Sarah's a, we're, we're good people. <laughs> yes, Sarah. Oh, I hope this Sarah is nice to her. I didn't hear anything about Sarah, good or bad, so let's just say she was okay. a good person. Okay, good. Okay. So at this point, we're past past age 17, and uh, Alexina is a, is a teacher, and now is in this relationship with Sarah. But it's kind of a little bit um, taboo still. We're in the Victorian era. These are lesbians. Okay. So interestingly, when Alexina hit puberty, she did not develop breasts, and she did not start to menstruate. And instead started to develop some visible hair on her face. Oh. So, again, binary society, you know, not not really fitting into this, this binary notion. Yeah. So, I don't know the details of what this... So, so Alexina starts to experience, quote, excruciating pains. I have no idea what the pains were or what they were related to. But what is important is a doctor comes. Okay. And she's working at this all-girls school. The doctor examines her, and this doctor decides, you're not a girl. You shouldn't be here. What? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Drama. So the doctor is like, I think you shouldn't be here. I think you should leave. And she's like, I, I disagree, actually. Maybe we should um, attend to the pain. Yeah, <laughs> stay in your Sir? fucking lane over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So, so he's like, yeah, yeah, you're in excruciating pain, but you got to pack your bags and go. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> great. <laughs> Very helpful. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> this guy clearly didn't hear you at the start of the podcast saying, take care of your bodies. Yes. Agenda. Um, so. So she's like, actually, I fucking disagree. So she stays. She doesn't leave. Uh, but then she's you know, devoutly religious and mm-hmm. she goes to uh, confession. And again, didn't say in the article. Oh. So I don't know what's going on at confession. But at some point, I, maybe she was complaining about the pain. Like, I'm not really sure yeah. what happened. But what did happen is the priest asked, like, do I have your permission to call for a doctor? So... Uh, another doctor ends up coming. Hmm. I'm sorry that I don't have all the details of, of why. Yeah. All the wiki article said was that it had to do with her being at confession and talking to the priest. I did look into this priest. He had his own wiki article. Seems like a solid guy. I don't think he's a bad guy here. Cool. Um, okay. So, well, how? what a good man, though, to, like, you've obviously got someone who's in pain and is scared because they didn't get treated right. And he's like, no, we got to get you treated. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like even asking, do I have your permission to break the confession? Because like, whatever you say in confession. He's obviously concerned for her health. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's supposed to stay secret. And he was like, can I, can I please help? Yeah. So. Yeah. The doctor who looks over her says, you have pseudo hermaphrodism, which means matching chromatal and gondol tissue. Oh, sorry. I read my own notes wrong. 
the chromatal and gondal tissue matched the sex, but mismatched mm-hmm. genitalia. So what does that what does that mean? I think what that means is that the chrom- chromosomes and the gondal tissues match being a female, but okay. externally uh, presents as male. Okay. So this is why I was saying that like <clears throat> sex can be like a weird spectrum or like mishmash, mish, mismatch, mishmash, 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 mishmash of just a whole because <clears throat> you've got these different variables to play with. When before, when I was like reading yeah. the the um, definition that had to do with like reproductive organs, chromosomes, hormones, genitals, like totally different. Like I could have a uterus. But then also a penis or the other way around. Yeah, and the way that we form as a fetus as well, Drew probably knows more about this because you're a real biologist. But is it that the, like technically what start as the ovaries then can turn into testicles? I forget Mm -hmm. how that works. I think it's it's something similar to that, yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's like, um, I don't know if this is scientifically correct, but this is like a reason why men have nipples is because at the very early stages of like fetal and cell development is they're developing as if they were um, an XX chromosome. Um, So like a a traditionally uh, female sex, but then they can transform into the the male sex of XY chromosome. And some of those features are no longer needed, like nipples, because there's no, you know, working memory glands in most cases. But we still got them. Mm-hmm. With the female XX, um, one of the X's becomes a bar body, which means it kind of like folds into a, like a little ball um, and isn't actually expressed. And only one of the X's are expressed. And so that's why. So when you have XX, you have one bar body, one X. And so all the genes that are coming from one of the X's, that's all expressed. That's why males can survive with XY because you don't really need the second X, which is also why you can have certain syndromes where you only get one X, where those people can survive, but they don't because they don't have the bar body. Um, yeah. I forget exactly what kind of, um, I almost said symptoms, but that's not really Like manifestations. Right. Um, what kind of effects that has on their body, but um, are that's definitely so, like someone someone can survive as x x dash or whatever you want to call that's it that's fascinating um, but it's heavily de- it's heavily dependent on the sry or the sari um is yeah, it the sari yeah. gene or the sari i forget it, it but i remember it's like sorry you're male that's like the expression <laughs> <laughs> r.i.p to your grandma but i'm built different um the yeah the sry gene expressed that makes you male, and that's so sorry you're wow. male. That's uh, that's, that's how I fascinating. It. I didn't know that you could be just like X chromosome. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you could just be a pure X. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, wow, that's so. Yeah, so I will later talk about one of the um, possibilities of being XXY. That's a teaser for later. But I didn't realize mm-hmm. it can go the other way, and you can have one fewer. That's so fascinating. But yeah, okay. I think this is this is one of the things that really hooked me is the idea that just science and nature is such a fucking spectrum that we can have every variation. <laughs> like it's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So yeah, uh, we get to okay, right? Our story. Um, the doctor at this point is like, okay, this is the situation that that 
you're dealing with here is that you have organs internally that point to one sex and organs mm-hmm. externally that point to another. So what do we do about it? Well, it became a legal decision no. because that hmm. <laughs> makes sense, right? I Remember this crossroads because we're going to keep coming back to this okay. crossroads here. So somebody at this crossroads decided, let's take a legal route. Okay. okay. And at the legal crossroads, somebody decided that Bar- Barbin, this woman's last name, uh, is a male, okay. legally male now. So she lives her whole life as a woman and is now a male. Well, a male can't teach at an all-female school. Mm-hmm. So our protagonist, Barbin, has to leave the school and leave Sarah behind. Aww. And what is, I think, rather interesting is that at this point, Barbin changes his name to Abel okay. and starts presenting as male. And what I think is so interesting is that I, we know all of this because Barbin left memoirs. And in these memoirs, she refers to herself using female pronouns right. up until this point. Okay. And then... And it's after the legal... Oh, yeah. and then she changes them to him. him, him. Yes. After that point, he starts referring to himself using male pronouns after his name becomes Abel, okay. chron- chronologically in the story. Part of the reason I think this is interesting is because it really looks into our perception of the self. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Did she really see herself as a woman earlier in life? And I really suspect that she did not suddenly decide, oh, I'm a man now because the law tells mm-hmm. me. In fact... Throughout the book, or the book, their memoir, same thing, um, she felt that the reassignment was false. So I actually have committed to telling her story using female pronouns because in the end, that is what she decided, was that this reassignment was not okay. not fitting. She mm-hmm. does not feel that she was a man. She decides that, you know, woman, female was, was right yeah. for her. And so I, I would like to respect that. But I thought that it was very interesting that throughout her history, she, uh, her own history or her own retelling um, does switch pronouns. And part of the reason I found that interesting is because that I have friends that are transgender. And I have found that when transgender people are, even when you are describing transgender people, sometimes by accident, one of my transgender friends was telling me that when she is talking to her friends and her friends are sharing a memory or a story of something that she was involved in, they will use her old pronouns. Yes. Because it took place at that period in time where she was presenting a different way. Even though currently her fe- her pronouns are she, her, in the story they were different pronouns. And I thought that that was interesting the way that memory is linked to these pronouns and these ways that we sort of um, like store information. Yeah, it's like how we're storing the information in our yeah. brains. Or like if you retrieve a memory, you're not updating it with your new, new information. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Like, like it was written then Yay. with all of the current circumstances. And even though things have changed now, like our brains did not go back and rewire those pieces with new information. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of like a cool little side tangent into memory. But anyway, continuing on with uh, Barbin. So how did these books actually finally end up published? Her memoirs. So she uh, regrettably committed suicide in the same way as Sylvia Plath. 
and her memoirs were left on her bedside table. Hmm. I did not write down the guy's name. I don't even know how these memoirs passed hands, but excerpts from them were published uh, right around the time that she died in the late 1800s, so not in full. But then they were published in full. And this is the first time I saw the name Herculine Barbin. So I don't know if this is a name given to her because I don't think she ever called herself Herculine. But the author who published her work is Michael Foucault. I don't know if that's a familiar name to either of you. So Michael Foucault is a badass and I'm only familiar with him because I read some of his works when I was doing a literature degree the first time I went to college. (laughs) 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 But Michael Foucault was a badass philosopher, historian, literary critic, and gay. He was so awesome. Oh, he (laughs) sounds awesome. Lived in the 1970s unapologetically. And he wrote these um, really, really great works that are about the history of sexuality. Um, In fact, that's what it's called, the history of sexuality. And in doing so, he went down his own rabbit hole like we do. And uh, ended up coming across her books. So he is French. She is French. And he came across her uh, her memoirs and published them in English and gave them like a preface and everything like that. So he's the one who really brought them to life. Um, and wow. in addition to writing about the history mm-hmm. of sexuality, he fought against racism, human rights abuse, and fought for prison reform. What a legend. Yeah, Michael Foucault is an Awesome, awesome. I'm gonna person. go read some of his things. Do <laughs> yeah, I do recommend? <laughs> I do. Um, and I thought that I would close off Hercules' story by um, saying that, it, in, on a positive note, that Intersex Day of Remembrance is on her birthday, November eighth, and that is the way that we honor Aww. her. But I couldn't help myself, and I absolutely needed to know how did intersex people live throughout history because if science has been doing this then intersex people have existed for thousands of years so why again am i just hearing about it (laughs) part of the reason i even got on this tangent is again thank thanks to Foucault because he writes a little bit about the way intersex people were perceived in the middle ages so i'm going to start with the middle ages and i'm going to go backwards intersex in the middle ages legally if you are born intersex then you choose if you are male or female. Okay. Okay. There are some problems with this. Why should you have to choose? <laughs> you know, yes. at first I was like, wow, that's really considerate of them. And then I was like, hang on, back up. Wait. Yes. <laughs> I was like, actually, that is super fucked. So <laughs> not a lot of room for intersex people, but... Okay, so they choose they choose if they want to be male or female. And the other heavy, heavy caveat is you must be a cisgendered person, which means that if you choose male, you cannot be gay. And if you choose female, you cannot be gay. Well, that's stupid. It is pretty stupid. I agree. <laughs> that's, that's not that's not how sexuality and gender work. Not at all. No, no. no. So it's kind of like... <laughs> 
I don't know. I, I started imagining myself like in the medieval times and I was like, all right, I'll just reverse engineer whoever I fall in love with. I'll just be the opposite of that gender. And it just got into this place where I was like, this is really fucked. This is not, this is not the way to be solving. Sometimes I approach problems like a scientist and not like a person. <laughs> like, it was yeah. just one of those times. I'll just, just calculate the trajectory and then we'll land and we'll be... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like, fuck, that's not how life works. That's absolutely not how life works. Um, But I did actually think it was slightly forgiving that uh, in some cases, if a godparent assigns your sex, like so you're born intersex, your godparent chooses what sex you are, you do have the option to change it if you don't like it. But you really only get one shot because then if you decide that you're gay, like, well, you just decided that you're gay. Clear. <laughs> I didn't mean to say it like that. You know, you just decided you're gay. Well, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. This is good. So let's let's actually dive right into some medical history. So the middle Middle Ages had some ideas as to how people are born intersex. How does this happen? Well, Sarah, yeah. did you know that the uterus has seven cells? Only seven. <laughs> It's seven, seven chambers, actually. I should be asking Drew. Drew, Dr. Drew, did you know that the uterus has seven chambers? <laughs> Not a doctor. Uh, no, I actually didn't. No, so it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> but the, the people in the Middle Ages thought that the uterus had seven chambers. And that seven. You could, so first divide it in I was half. Like, You've got what three. the fuck? Are we talking? I thought you were talking like cells when it was developing. I'm like, that is not a lot of cells. Um, but I no, didn't realize I, you were talking. Chambers. I thought the same thing. Oh my god, I thought the same thing too. I was like, it's way more than that. And then they were like, there's these chambers, and I was like, it's not, it's not that. So they think what? It's like a wine cellar down there. You just pop in your seven favorites, and away you go. Wait, but like that metaphor kind of works because they're like. They're like they're like, okay, you've got three compartments on one side, three compartments on the other side, one in the middle. And if you're a man, men are born from one side and women are born from the other side. And if you're intersex, oh it means God. you're born from the middle chamber of the uterus. And what decides this, here we go, is that the testicles also have a male and female side and depending on which side the sperm came from so we're putting wine in the wine cellar here depending yes. on what side <laughs> i would make a great biology teacher <laughs> depending wine in the wine we're cellar. put some wine in the wine cellar Depending uh, on kind of age it for a bit, make it a bit vintage, and then you can pop it open. You know, we were just talking about launching merch. Let's just let's just start a wine. <laughs> Called the uterus chambers. <laughs> in, in like that winery script, fun. <laughs> <laughs> Back to science. <laughs> Real science. If, if let's say, a sperm comes from the feminine side of the testicles but populates the masculine side of the uterus, well, then you would end up with an effeminate man. That's just science. Hmm. 
Okay. The opposite this is, is And they legitimately believed this back in the day. They did, yes. Wow. <laughs> so, did, no one, did no one have a peek? A peek <laughs> at, at the uterus? Just a little... Nobody opened it up and they were like, there's no fucking chambers there. here. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't, I don't Are know. Are they what. saying that one, like, one testicle is, like, going to produce males and one testicle is going to produce females? What are they saying here? <laughs> like, one side? That's a good question. I, I like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Surely that, they could have that's... proven that wrong, though, because heaps of men only have one testicle. Oh. And I'm sure they're, they're popping out different, like, the, if back in the day when you're having many children, right. it wouldn't have just been a like a whole clan of you know 18 females from okay but if i was the dad if would... i if i was a middle-aged scientist i'd be like well that one testicle is both of them put together there's the, there's your answer yeah it's fused <laughs> yeah you would be such a good like re- uh, renaissance <laughs> is that a compliment <laughs> i was gonna say that's the best backhanded compliment i've ever received <laughs> that's so good <laughs> it is. It, it's a compliment in your creativity. Oh, the... you're a very good, very good 21st century scientist. But your creativity would have been lit back in the day. <laughs> and creativity is lit. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. So, okay, there you have it. So the um, medieval scientists explained it. But let's let's get more ancient, shall we? More ancient, more than 500 years ago. The ancient Sumerians, 4,000 years ago in their creation myth, have this sort of story where a mother goddess is creating humans and she creates an intersex person and says that this person will stand before kings. I loved that. I was like, all right, inclusion. Inclusion is already happening. 4,000 years ago, we're setting the precedent. I love that, yeah. Um, jumping right up to the first century of the common era, so in the year 100, and between zero to 100, um, in ancient India, mm-hmm. you have these androgynous composites of different deities. So, for example, Shiva and uh, his consort Parvati, they mix together mm-hmm. and make Ardana, Ardana Rishivara, Ardana Rishivara, sorry, Okay. <laughs> I hope I got that. Um, and this this individual lives as an intersex god who is the combination of these two gods. And in fact, in present day, there are groups of people uh, called the yep. Kinar. That's how they refer to themselves. Um, who live as... Well, okay. So Kinar... Sorry. Let me start over. <laughs> Today... There are people who are associated with Hydra, who is a uh, god. Who? It's okay. Wait, sorry, fuck! I fucked it up again. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> okay. Current day, there are people who are called Hydras, and they prefer to call themselves actually Kinar. Who? Kinar is a mythical being, so I think Hydra is the um, sort of social term for these people, mm-hmm. but Kinar is how they refer to themselves. In present-day uh, South India, these are people who are intersex, and they have like their own whole community, and they named themselves after these mytho- mythological beings who excel at yeah. song and dance. So it's like this sort of bird creature kind of bard 
creature. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, they uh the the pictures of them are just like so so beautiful like there's just so many people like smiling and like living their best life and um yeah really really awesome so i was happy to see that there are like these really thriving communities of people who just you know really own their identity and they're like yeah this is me and kind of like you know social there's a social name for it you know it's not like some kind of other or you don't have to fit uh in this binary but that has been around or the idea or um at least records of recognizing androgyny and intersex uh, go as far back in India as the first century CE. And then in Tantra Hinduism or the tantric uh, branches of Hinduism, there is a pervasive belief that actually everybody has both. Not, it's not special. Hmm. In fact, actually I shouldn't say that everybody has both. And the people who do show both are special. They are one complete ideological physical form wow that is so sweet wow yeah they are because they are these complementary halves put together in one human and the idea is that everybody has these maybe just in different um capacity or i don't want to say capacities but maybe in different um what is the what is the word i'm looking for like different magnitudes i guess um and yeah yeah, intersex people are like an ideal balance of of those two things like yin and yang put together exactly exactly yes skipping to ancient greece the hippocratic and galenic model of uh medicine we've talked about like well i think we all know that like the hippocratic oath Mm -hmm. comes from ancient greece um yep so the according to the hippocratic model sex is a spectrum there it is done ancient greece wow sex is a spectrum and you have masculine women you have feminine men you have intersex people Oh my god, I love the ancient Greeks. They were on it. <laughs> they they did that. They absolutely did that. And in their uh, sort of mythological pantheon, there is somebody named Hermaphroditus, who was yes. a man who was born, and a water nymph fell in love with him. And she was like, be with me. And he was like, I don't really feel like it. And then he thought that she was gone. And so he's like, I'm going to take my clothes off and go for a swim. And then she was like, I'm still <laughs> here. And then they bonded together. And they are now one being hermaphroditus. <laughs> That's a great story. True that is, I love the ancient Greek stories. They're so extra. <laughs> so good. The name hermaphroditus also comes in ancient Rome, but it's a combination of Hermes and Aphrodite. Oh, wow. So hermaphrodite, I guess kind of makes sense, or hermaphroditus. And um, Hmm. this person being born of the gods, you know, is a god themselves. But when a intersex person is born in their society, it is like the god appearing among mortals. Wow. Cool. Such a compliment. Yeah. I thought that one was also pretty fucking badass. That is so badass. That is so cool. (laughs) And I guess that's where we get the term. Uh, hermaphrodite now if you display both male and female genitalia exactly so that was another thing that i did not know and had to look up but yes i believe that if you are a hermaphrodite by definition you display exactly what you said both male and female and that is a subset of being intersex wow that's amazing i think 
I read some conflicting reports, though. Some people say that it's an antiquated term that people don't like. Other people are saying, oh, no, that's been reclaimed. So socially, I don't know where we're at with saying hermaphrodite. Yeah. Like the term. So um, that's also, I mean, it's not as encompassing as intersex. Yeah, of so course. To be, to be fair, I actually have no idea, like, this is all new to me. Like, I have no idea if people still even use the phrase. But I think it, it does actually refer to in its purest form, Coming just what you said. From the, that makes sense that it came from the, the ancients, but I'm sure people would have, it's probably being used derogatorily, being used as a derogatory term. In, in our more yeah, I think history. it's one of those. Unfortunately, exactly. I think it's one of those terms that's been abused. Yeah, yeah. but that is where mm-hmm. it came from. Like I, I felt so dumb being like, "Oh my god, duh, Hermes and Aphrodite." Like, yeah, <laughs> like that's how it goes together. I ah, fucking hell. Anyway, I'm almost done. Almost done with my examples. Medieval Islam, going a little bit forward in time. This is one of those weird laws that I was so okay. I said, remember this this crossroads right we've got an intersex person for some reason we need to make a judgment what do we do with something that doesn't fit in a binary yes or no zero one category well there's some stupid laws about that in medieval islam let's start with why was it any anybody's fucking business in medieval islam there's a story of five brothers who inherited uh their father's sort of like wealth and here's the here's the thing is that the inheritance was very Mm -hmm. like patrilineal or uh, had to go to men. So one of the five brothers was intersex. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just go back and blame the the patriarchy real quick. Okay. It's always the patriarchy's fault. So one of the brothers is intersex. And apparently this question was raised kind of in a legal sense. What do we do? How do we give inheritance that's supposed to go to men to somebody who's intersex? And so you give it, you give them the land. You just give it to I know. Let's should be straightforward. I'm going to be a medieval doctor, but you are going to be a medieval lawyer. You're just going to go and like, just give it, just fucking give it to them. Just give them the land. It didn't have to be a problem, but they made it a problem. <laughs> oh, no. So the lawyer is like, I know how to fix this. Where does your pee come from? And oh. that was the test. Okay. I don't actually but think. Do they know that the pee doesn't come from the vagina? Did they know that? I so, I I do I don't know. And apparently, this like this people this, still don't know that this practice has its own name, Hukam Al Mahal. And so I don't actually think that this was the first. Like I don't think this lawyer like made this up, but rather like invoked this. Was like, oh, I know what to do here. Just pee. Where's your pee come from? Where's your pee come and from? And do, do you, do they have to watch or could they just lie? I, I hope they could lie. I'm, right. I'm not advocating lying, but in this situation, <laughs> just lie. Get that just land. <laughs> just snatch that land. Well, <laughs> well, jokes on this lawyer, because this individual apparently peed from both places. Yes, queen, good on you. <laughs> way, yes! to, way to trap the system. So the way that this ended up being resolved finally was, okay, this individual gets half of what a man would inherit and half what? of what a female would inherit. And what would a female inherit? Did they? Inherit- Great question. I didn't look that up. 
Well, I hope they just got the full land. I hope it ended up just equaling what they were owed. But I I agree. Like the whole thing, yeah. Wow. It's pretty bullshit. I don't know why uh, I don't know why have we had to cling so 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 hard to men inheriting this particular thing. But anyway, so um that that medieval court case I was talking about took place in the 7th century, which is not wow. medieval times. Uh but the 13th century also in uh Islam, there there came about to be it its own category of sex, its own intermediary category. So there was male, female, and kuntha mishkil. I hope it wow. pronounced that right. But as early as the fucking 13th century, intersex people were identified as their own sex. That's amazing. I love that. I was like, yeah, do it right. Ooh. Yeah. It makes me just angry now anytime that I, you know, you do forms and it says, you know, your gender or your sex, like male or female, or maybe sometimes they have other, if you're lucky. But it makes me angry now that we can't even do that on most That's things. a great point. I didn't even <laughs> think about that, that like in the fucking drop down menu, you don't get an intersex option. Yeah, and you should. That Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. That is, that is so cool though how far back in history it goes yeah i i absolutely i was like i can't tell you how i beamed when i saw intersex people in history as its own wiki article i was like fuck yeah we've got data (laughs) (laughs) we got data so um later in or i guess this is somehow earlier as early as the 11th century in islamic law you could uh change your sex from female to male, if you so decided, um, based on how you decide to identify as an intersex person. So it was also rather flexible. You didn't okay. have to pick this third category. You could pick if you wanted to be um, male or female, especially after puberty. Yeah. So again, I was like, damn, like they made it pretty fucking easy. Well, they did probably didn't. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, <laughs> it might have been a real process. But at least they had systems in place, unlike some other places. Exactly. Well put. And I'll close off the Islamic Middle Ages by saying in the 16th century, we're going to choose to focus on the bright side. There was a uh, law that directed slave owners to use gender neutral language when referring to intersex slaves. So this particular lawmaker realized that if you use male or female language, it may not mm-hmm. actually refer to those slaves. So to ensure that those particular slaves were free, you had to use gender neutral language. Wow. wow. That is so interesting and we are it's so close to human rights, aren't we? I yeah, we're right we're right there. So close. So close, yet then, so far. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. They do have slaves. I mean that's <laughs> They do still have slaves, so, like, we're not. We're not that close. We're really not. You know, make sure we refer to them respectfully, but also own them. That's, like, that's, like, oh, my God. That's, like, I feel like we Sorry, see, Lindsay. not to, not to like, it's totally not the same thing, but it's, like, all those jokes, like, at the last election where it was, like, now there's a woman sending nukes. It's, like, you know, <laughs> progress we're so woke now (laughs) 
Anyway, Drew, yeah. do with this what you will. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> God damn it. I can edit this one. That was, that was, that was fascinating. Yes, thank you. I this is really great. I enjoyed learning all about that. Thank you, Lindsay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I add one last present day happy fact? Yes, yes. go for it. In 2016, a 55-year-old woman named Sarah Keenan, we come back, the story begins and ends with a Sarah, um, in New York City, was born with male genes, female genitalia, and mixed organs, and became the first intersex person to receive an intersex birth certificate in the United States. Oh, that's good cool. on her. Congratulations, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. Way to go, Sarah. Absolutely. So that's that's where I'll leave it. Thank you guys for that crazy wild ride. I learned so much. Even talking to you guys, I learned so much. <laughs> oh, it's so interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so speaking about ancient, you know, quote unquote science, uh, I ended up on the page for Philosopher's Stones. <laughs> Which, I'm which so I've always excited heard. to learn yeah. more about these. <laughs> which I, I really, I've always heard about these kind of things and like kind of knew what they were, but I really didn't know the history of them or kind of what the purpose of a philosopher's stone was. I just like kind of had an idea. So it was really cool to kind of dive into that and and really get a better idea of what a philosopher's stone actually is. But if you can, I ask you right now. Yes. Go for it. Do you have the capabilities to make one? We're going to talk about that. <laughs> We're going to talk about a recipe to make one. I'm going to give the recipe for free right now. Oh, for wow. free. Just sign up, follow Go Ask Alice Pod, and it is yours. It is yours. You can have it for free. It's actually at the end, so you got to listen to me, you know, talk a bunch just to get to the Philosopher's Stone. But anyway. For the... <laughs> It's a good <laughs> So, um, the Philosopher's Stone, if you haven't heard of one, uh, it's a mythical alchemical substance that is capable of some fantastical things. So it can do pretty can do some do some pretty great great things. Wow. So the first use of the Philosopher's Stone, which I actually didn't know, um, is it's uh, it can transmute base metals into gold, such as mercury to gold or lead to gold, you know, things like that. So, you know, the Philosopher's Stone kind of has that, that basic alchemical property of, of transmuting things, which I didn't know. I, I, I knew it more for the second thing that it can do, uh, which is the Philosopher's Stone is known as the elixir of life, uh, which can be used for rejuvenation or helping to achieve immortality. And as I said, you know, the latter definition of, of a Philosopher's Stone is kind of what pe- people focus on. But, you know, it can do both of those things, which is very important because it's very important to alchemy. So uh, anyway, for many centuries, the Philosopher's Stone was the most sought after goal within alchemy. And I think we all have an idea of what alchemy is. But if you don't know, uh, very broadly, alchemy is the the proto-scientific method or the early scientific, and I say scientific in quotes here, uh, method of attempting to purify, mature, and perfect certain materials. So that's kind of... So ancient chemistry. Yeah, it's... it's, it's it's ancient. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. I, I would say I would say it's close to chemistry, but it's more hocus pocus than than chemistry at the end of the day. Okay. Um, okay. Right. So as I mentioned before, the philosopher's stone can be used to perform these alchemical practices. So being able to create a philosopher's stone is central to the process of alchemy. So it was even written that the philosopher's stone represents perfection, enlightenment, and heavenly bliss. 
So uh, with the Philosopher's Stone representing the alchemy magnum opus or the like the great work. So it's very, very, very important to alchemy is the, the idea of a Philosopher's Stone. So now that we know a little bit more about the Philosopher's Stone and just how important it is to alchemy, I think we should dive into a little bit of its history. So the earliest written mention of the Philosopher's Stone can be dated yeah. back to 300 AD in the Cherokometa uh, by Al- but But here's the funny thing. Alchemist writers suggest an even longer history of the Philosopher's Stone, saying it dates back all the way to Adam, who acquired the knowledge of the stone directly from God. What? So, oh. Adam and Eve, yeah. they're, saying, they're saying Adam, like, had a Philosopher's Stone. What, did um, he smuggle it out of the Garden of Eden in between his Oh my God! Well, you know, <laughs> he, he passed the knowledge <laughs> on. So he had the knowledge of the stone directly okay. from God. So, so this knowledge is said to have been passed down through the biblical patriarchs, which gave them a longevity that's referred to in the Bible, which, as we know, or as some of us know, <gasps> there's a, the people in the Bible live a very, very long time, you know, hundreds of years, and it's, some say that it's because they had Philosopher's Stones. And and so that gave them like immortality almost. Oh shit! So so basically, you know, it's a little bit of of mysticism within the Bible. This the the philosopher's stone. That's fascinating. But the the theoretical roots outline that the philosopher's stone creation can be traced back to Greek philosophy, <gasps> um, where alchemists use classical elements of water, earth, fire, air, and then later ether or aether. Oh um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, they use they use those they also use the concept of anima mundi which is a connection between all living things and the world it's kind of like like the how the whole, the soul is connected to the human body it's like all living things are connected to the world like a soul would be and then um it uses they use creation stories from plato as analogies for their process of creating or using a uh, a, a philosopher's stone so according to Plato, the four elements are derived from a common source of prima materia, or first matter, which is associated with chaos, interesting enough, um, and is often referred to as the starting material for the creation of a philosopher's stone. So the important... So first you need chaos? Fir- well, you need, you need this first materia, the, the prima materia, to f- create a philosopher's stone. It's just like, it's just oh, associated with chaos because it's like a, um, it's almost like a... I guess chaos in the sense of like entropy. It's almost like the this this great um, like unchanged, not unchanged, but like unformed kind of material that you can make a philosopher's like primordial. Stone out of. Yeah, primordial. That's the word I was looking for. Primordial material that you can make a philosopher's stone out of. So that's like okay. that's the importance of this material. Um, so and and funny enough, the the first matter uh, remained a very important part of alchemy throughout its history, moving forward because it's just like. You know, philosopher stones and first materia kind of came hand in hand, where you kind of needed one to make the other. And it was written in the 17th century that the first materia, sorry, the first matter of the stone is the very same as the first matter of all things. So basically, this first matter is super important to the idea of philosopher stones. And I just found that very interesting that that they kind of had this like primordial matter that that they said existed that you could make a philosopher stone out of. Yeah. So uh, now we move to the Middle Ages, where early medieval alchemists built on the work of uh, Zosimos, 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 I think. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it. There's a Z (laughs) (laughs) from the Byzantine Empire and the Arab empires. So alchemists from within these empires were fascinated by the concept of material transmutation and attempted many times to carry out this process. 
So the 8th the eighth century Muslim alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan analyzed each of these classical elements in terms of their four basic qualities. He said that fire was both hot and dry, earth was cold and dry, water was cold and moist, and air was hot and moist. And he theorized I that every that. metal... <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, it's just true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, go yes. <laughs> So he theorized that every metal was a combination of these four principles, two interior and two exterior. And it was, it was thought that transmutation of metals could be performed by rearranging these basic qualities. And he said, thermodynamics. Exactly. Exactly. It's thermodynamics at its finest. Um, And he said this change of the qualities would have to be um, mediated (laughs) by a substance called an, an elixir or elixir. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's it's A L I K S I R elixir um, in Arabic, which <gasps> the word elixir comes from. Um, and so this material oh, is a dry red powder, mind. also known as yeah. red sulfur, made from philosopher stones. So you had to like grind up a philosopher stone to make an elixir, and this like powder was like the reagent that you needed to to mediate these changes. So you needed a philosopher stone, according to to this man, that, that, like to to make these these transmutations happen. So just a very very interesting oh, interesting shit. process. Um, but it all within that paradigm totally fits together. Yeah. Like within this little frame of logic that he's created, it's, it all checks out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Do then. drink the elixirs? Um, I would say probably. <laughs> because I imagine that'd be super bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> knowing 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 like like early scientists i'm gonna say yeah probably they probably drank it oh my god they would have had the worst fucking time <laughs> drinking their ground up rocks <laughs> well well alchemists tried to make these like different medicines and panaceas that that were just like you know were meant to to cure everything and panacea and kind of the whole point of it but um you know they were they were trying to make these these medicines um, out of out of raw components and and trying to like mm. materialize things out of them. So I don't know. They probably drank it. I'm just gonna assume they did. But <laughs> <laughs> I love that assumption. Speaking as a medieval scientist, I would have. Yeah, I probably. Would've. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta test your product. Exactly. Exactly. Oh yeah. You can't sell faulty product. Yeah. <laughs> faulty product from an alchemist. Who knew? Yeah. Funny enough that we're talking about this. Uh, in the 11th century, there's actually a big debate among Muslim chemists on whether the, the, trans, uh, the transmutation of substances was actually possible with the leading opponent of, tran- opponent of transmutation uh, discrediting the theory, saying that those of the chemical craft know well that no change can be affected in different species of substance, though they can produce an appearance of such change. So basically he's saying that, yeah, we can kind of make something look like it's changed, but it's not actually changing. We're not like changing the, like, the species that we're using. Like we're actually like just making it look like we did. And so I just found that very cool that even back then they believed that alchemy was a bit of bullshit, but, you know. Guys, none of this is working. None of this is working. You've made, you made mud. You did not make something different. You made mud. 
Oh, oh my God. Wow. So now we move on to the Renaissance era, which it, it, the Renaissance and early modern period. So the, so the 16th century. So um, a Swiss alchemist, uh, Paracelsus, uh, believed in the existence of an alkahest or alkist, um, which is a universal solvent that was able to dissolve any substance without altering its fundamental component. So this alkahest was considered to be an undiscovered element from which all other elements are derived. And Paracelsus believed that this element was actually the philosopher's stone. So you really needed this like <sighs> universal solvent to be able to dissolve everything and then, you know, reconstitute it as something different. And that's, that's kind of what the philosopher's stone was. Or that's what he that believed so the philosopher's sense. stone was. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> It would be a cool thing to have. That absolutely checks out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So now we move to England. Did he find it? What was that? Did he find it? Of course he didn't. (laughs) I was getting attached. Oh, damn it. All right. So it's not in Islam. It's not in the Swiss Alps. So Where are we looking now? So in England, actually. But uh, I'm just going to say the Philosopher's Stone is mythical. So no one finds it. Spoiler. Do not give away Spo- the answer. <laughs> Sorry, <like> spoiler. <laughs> but you said we could make it. We can make it, which we will. All right. <laughs> you are the worst salesman. <laughs> this doesn't work. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I'm going to tell you how to make Stay it. Stay tuned. We're going to... Just wait until I tell you how to make it. You'll see why. You'll see why. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So now, now we move on to the England, the English philosopher Thomas Brown, who identified the religious aspects of the quest for the Philosopher's Stone, saying that the smattering I have of Philosopher's Stone, which is something more than the perfection exalteration of gold, hath taught me a great deal of divinity. So basically he kind of connected that the Philosopher's Stone and divinity are kind of connected a little bit. Um, and, and they... Um, yeah, yeah, just that they're connected and, and, and um, you know, it's just more than, it's more than just being able to produce gold. It's, it's actually got some divinity to it, which is cool. Um, and then finally in the 17th century, mm-hmm. the work Mutus Liber um, was published, which was a symbolic instruction manual for, con- for concocting a philosopher's stone in a collection of 15 illustrations. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any versions of this. And I would love to see it because it <laughs> sounds like a great. When was this published? I don't. It didn't have a date. Um, I don't. It was 17th century. Sorry, it was the 17th century that it was published. Um, I looked on Project Gutenberg and I couldn't find anything. So uh, I think um, I think it, I don't know. I don't know. It might be lost to time, but um, it had 15 I'm illustrations. Send the text. Yeah, exactly. It had 15 illustrations that were uh, like different phases of how you create a philosopher's stone, which is really cool. Um, but now we actually we do a little little shift. We're shifting into third gear now, um, where we're moving into Buddhism and Hinduism, which uh, they have an equivalent of the philosopher's stone uh, okay. called the Sintamati. Sorry, Sintamani, um, which reciting the the chant of the Sintamani. Uh, it is believed that one could attain the wisdom of Buddha, one could understand the truth of Buddha, and one could turn afflictions into bodhi or enlightenment. And so, so basically, this the, this philosopher stone could give oh. you knowledge of Buddha or knowledge akin to Buddha, uh, which is which is super holy and, and is actually like really important <laughs> to the religion. So it was um, it's it's very interesting to me that 
it was more knowledge-based and yeah. not so like material like, oh, it can transmute gold or make you immortal. It was like, oh, it can give you knowledge. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just, you know, Buddhism in general. Anyway, so uh, that's me generalizing Buddhism. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in Hinduism, the Philosopher's Stone is connected to the gods Vishnu and Ganesha. Um, so in Hindu traditions, the Philosopher's Stone is often depicted as a fabulous jewel in the possession of the Naga King. Uh, and the Naga are a divine or semi-divine race of half-human, half-serpent beings. Ooh, yeah. Or the Philosopher's Stone is depicted on the forehead of Makara, which I'm sure is a god within the Hindu religion. I didn't really look too much into it. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> sure, he's a god. Who else would have it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So, <laughs> so in the 10th century AD, Hindu writings contained references and stories about philosopher stones as well. So, you know, it was, it's, it's kind of throughout Hindu uh, religion that, that the idea of a philosopher stone is present. And a great Hindu sage, which was not named by the, who was not named by the article, which I found very funny, um, wrote about the spiritual accomplishments of Ganas, or knowledge and the use of the meta and use the metaphor of a philosopher's stone to describe the attainment of knowledge. So it was just kind of like here again, the philosopher's stone leads to knowledge, which I just find very interesting that it's not like a material thing and that it's leading to knowledge instead of, instead of materials, but it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So then we, uh, so then we have St. Geneswar, uh, from 17, from sorry, not 17, 1275 to 1296, he wrote a commentary with 17 references to the Philosopher's Stone that, that explicitly transmutes base metals into gold. So this one, the, the saint was actually writing about this Philosopher's Stone and said that like, hey, it, it does this cool shit, you know, <laughs> it transmutes base metals into gold. Um, and then the 7th century Siddhar uh, Thumolar, uh, he explains that the man's path to immortality um, involves the name of God, Shiva, as an alchemical vehicle that turns the body into immortal gold, which um, it kind of, you know, combines the transmuting of, of gold and also the, the little bit of immortality that the Philosopher's Stone mm -hmm. does. So it kind of puts those two together, which I found also very interesting. So okay, then also the weird that Shiva's come up twice now. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> yeah. So the final depiction of the Philosopher's Stone is the Shimantaka Mani. Shimantaka Mani. Um, <laughs> sorry, there's so many words that I'm just like, what the fuck? How do I pronounce this? Uh, so which, according to Hindu mythology, is a ruby that is capable of preventing all natural calamities such as droughts and floods around its owner, as well as producing eight, eight baharas, which are 170 pounds of gold a day. So this Ooh. like jewel just produces gold for you a day, <laughs> like a ton of gold, not a ton, 170 pounds. I love that there is a unit like, <laughs> yeah, <a> baharaz. <laughs> okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting quantitative. I, okay. Yeah, it's it's just it, it's that's what it does. So there's a lot of references to the philosopher's stone in uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. So now let's do a little description of what the Philosopher's Stone actually looks like so that we know once we got a Philosopher's Stone, what, like what we got. Um, yeah, how do I know? So let's start by saying that descriptions of the stone are very numerous and various just from the get-go. So like we have, 
there's so many different ways to describe this stone that's kind of like it could be anything but um, according to alchemical texts uh, the philosopher's stone came in two different varieties uh, both of which were prepared in almost identical methods and so the first philosopher's stone yeah the first philosopher's (laughs) stone stone (laughs) was white uh, which was used for making silver and the other was red which was used for making gold so the the white stone was actually considered less mature than the the red stone which i just also very interesting so and then how would you mature your stone i don't know rub it i don't i don't know <laughs> you are okay i'm gonna think about this the considering what i'm about to say about the like the processes that they had to go through it could be literally anything to mature a stone. Like, <laughs> it could be anything. Okay. So, um, some ancient and medieval alchemist texts actually leave clues to the physical appearance of the stone, uh, specifically the red stone. It was said to be orange or saffron colored or red when ground into a powder, but in solid form, it was an intermediate between red and purple that is transparent and glass-like. It was said to be heavier than gold, soluble in any liquid, yet incombustible in fire, which is very interesting properties. Um, and then some suggest <laughs> that the stone's descriptions are metaphorical, where sometimes the appearance of the stone was actually expressed geometrically instead of a physical description. Now, are you ready for this geometric description? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Use your mind's eye for this one. Okay. So make, make of a man and a woman a circle, then a quadrangle. Out of this, a, a triangle. Make again a circle, and you will have the stone of the wise. There you go. That's it. I have what? a That's mess of limbs. <laughs> That's a magic potion. That's it. It's playing Twister with a friend. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Make of a man and a woman a circle, then a quadrangle. Out of a triangle, make a circle again, and you'll have the stone of the wise. There you go. Sarah, that's, that's, that's it. That's it's all you got to do. Twister. All you got to do. Yeah. What a wild ride. <laughs> Basically, what it comes down to is no one really has any idea what it looks like or, you know, how to make it because, you know, it's a mythical stone. But anyway, let's... You could have one right now and not know you, it. You really... I really could. Um, so let's end with the creation of a philosopher's stone. So a philosopher's stone is created by an alchemical method that I mentioned before, the magnum opus, or the great work. So the original process requires four distinct color changes of four stages. There's a blackening, or a melanosis, a whitening, or a leucosis, a yellowing, or a sorry xanathosis, and a reddening, or purpling, known as iosis. And these four phases of creation are the basics of creating a philosopher's stone. So you just got to make color changes. That's it. You know, just a little... You know, a little black, a little white, a little yellow, and then red, and you're good. And that's a philosopher's stone. That's, that's it. it. Uh, <laughs> wow, easy. Okay. So we'll all have have infinite energy and vitality. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Great. <laughs> funny from that's this. That's easy. Uh, there are tons and tons and tons of recipes for, like, various alchemical recipes that elaborate on these color changes uh, using suggested chemical steps to be performed. 
And I will say, after reading quite a few of them, there is very little consistency in the names of these processes, in the number of steps, their order, or even their description in general. There's just like no consistency whatsoever in in their in the creation of the Philosopher's Stone. It's just like you you, you kind of just pick one method and run with it. Like that's it. And I I love that. That's what you take issue with. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example from Samuel Norton, which is a 16th century example. So the 14 steps are purgation, sublimation, calcination, (laughs) exuberation, fixation, solution, (laughs) separation, conjunction, putrefaction in sulfur. I'm sorry. So he's just grabbing a dictionary and picking words. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let him finish. Let him finish. Wait. Solution of bodily sulfur. What? Solution of sulfur of oh. white light. <laughs> what? Oh. Fermentation in elixir. Oh. Multiplication oh in virtue. Multiplication. And then multiple. <laughs> <laughs> multiplication in quantity and there you go now you got a philosopher's stone right there boom oh, i love that they were probably making shit tons of money off people being like ah yes i can create you a philosopher's stone it's like a big sales tactic all the different occasions that they do to it and they probably just <laughs> hand over a boulder here's your rock there you go so i used to play this game for a very brief while i taught middle schoolers English. Aww. We used to play this game. <laughs> we used to play this game where you start out with a piece of paper and you write a sentence at the top. You hand that piece of paper to the person next to you. They see the sentence. They have to write the next one, but they have to cover the first I sentence. Love... They yes. pass it on. You played yes. this game. So, <laughs> so in the end, everybody in the class gets this piece of paper, having seen only the preceding sentence and none of the rest of the paper. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all they have to write their next sentence on. That is exactly what this sounds like. <laughs> this guy just passed a paper around his fucking one one school house, one room schoolhouse. It was like, it was like, what does God look like? And they were like, eternal sublimation or whatever the fuck. Next, wow. <laughs> purgation, multiplication <laughs> of virtue. <laughs> I, just love, I love solution of sulfur of white light like what's sulfur of white light that's what i'm saying they did they all got the same prompt about god and they were like well this is how you make it and, you know the sulfur of the body yes yeah, solution of sulfur of bodily sulfur how do you get is that just urine sulfur? is that pee no because because you don't you don't pee out sulfur oh I- why not because you <laughs> farted out you that's what makes farts smell. Oh. oh. So I guess they're just bottling up their farts <laughs> to sell it. Wait, didn't that Twitch streamer do that? <laughs> yes, I remember seeing yeah. <laughs> someone yeah. made a fortune from it. Oh, wow. People don't change. I think, I think that, yeah, I think the rule of life is people don't change and we're all going to die. <laughs> that's it which is a great segue onto my topic of death yeah <laughs> I love it okay so I think I think uh, this leads us nicely into my topic knowing that 
we cannot live forever and we're all going to die. So I landed on Sacropomp uh, and from there I went on a bit of a mini tangent. So I've combined a few different pages together. Um, But I love this term Sacropomp and I didn't really know what it meant until a few months ago when Lindsay suggested it be our company name. Do you want to break down what it means, Lindsay? Yeah, a um, psychopomp is basically an usher into the underworld or something that takes you to death, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, like a gentle guider guider to the, the afterlife or to the underworld or wherever you might be going. Like a little usher, you know. Mm-hmm trying to find your seat i should say that our company is not a mortu- mortuary mortuary <laughs> <laughs> uh, could be <laughs> yeah no our company is gonna is gonna be like science guiding art but yeah. oh my goodness, that would be a fantastic funerary business. Too bad I don't think yeah. any of us could deal with dead bodies. I'm uh, just not good at makeup. <laughs> I'm not good at makeup. I beg to differ on that one. Oh no, we have half of it. But then Sarah and I just can't do eyeliner. <laughs> <laughs> I could do a I could do a nice like rosy cheek and a red lip. Oh, um, but the eyes would not be good. I'll be the empathy. All of our, all of our bodies would be wearing sunglasses. Oh my god! God, please continue with your topic, dear God. <laughs> anyway, so psychopomp. Uh, yes, yeah, someone, someone, or something that leads you to the afterlife. And what's fascinating about these is that they are like omnipresent all throughout different cultures, societies, and throughout history, which is really cool. And they either come in the forms of something more familiar to us, so maybe it's like a human-esque form, or they can come in forms of animals as well, which I also love. So I thought I should start by breaking down maybe the most well-known, well, sorry, I I misspeak. I'm going to break down the most well-known psychopomp in my world. It might not be in your world, but I I thought this was... um, (laughs) Very, very important. And that is Anubis in ancient Egyptian oh, times. Have you guys heard of Anubis? Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So this was, many people probably know of um, this character because his art is beautiful. It's a human man with the head of a jackal or the head of a wolf. And he is seen to be the protector of souls, the god of embalming and afterlife. And on many ancient Egyptian um, funeral texts and also uh, tombs and uh, burial places, he is often seen carved into or painted onto surfaces as a protector of the dead. Um, And one, what is amazing about this kind of god and deity is that throughout the different dynasties in ancient Egypt, he changed his roles he went through some job repositioning uh but he ended up as the undertaker for for the dead and that was his most well-known role wait he changed yeah, jobs so depending on what dynasty you were in he started out as just like the protector of funerals and then he was the god of embalming and then become the underkeeper wow okay several yeah, upgrades he, yeah he moved up the ranks this hmm. is what hard work can get you kid <laughs> humble embalming to this yeah 
<laughs> from an embalmer to the to the usher of souls here we go beautiful so, <laughs> so he would usher the souls to the afterlife but for those who might be a little familiar with ancient egypt there was an amazing test that all souls had to undergo to figure out if you were worthy for the afterlife and this is uh forever now uh known from uh, the Book of the Dead, which is one of the very famous ancient texts from Egypt, which is basically how to survive death and how to get to the the good place or the afterlife. You know, how is your soul going to last on forever? And one of the big things that is in the Book of the Dead is these beautiful drawings of uh, basically you take the deceased person's heart and you weigh it against a feather, metaphorically. Mm -hmm. And Anubis was the person who did this. He'd guide you down to the underworld or the afterlife. He'd rip out your heart and put it on a scale. And the idea is that if your heart was pure, if you had no lies, no secrets, nothing to hide, your heart would weigh less than a feather. Right. And if this is the case, then you were granted a ticket to the afterlife. You succeeded. Anubis, you know, said, nice knowing you. Here we go. And, <laughs> and, and let you into the good place, basically. Awesome. Um, yes. If you did not pass that, though, it was less of a good time. Uh, because if you had a heavy heart, you were obviously hiding something. You were... You were lying. You might have had uh, untruths that you were not speaking. And if that was the case, then you would be devoured by a mitt, which is the amazing Egyptian um, creature that has got like the head of a crocodile, the body of a jackal, the bum of a bear. You know, it's not going to be a good time being eaten, eaten by this creature, <laughs> basically. <laughs> None of that sounds pleasant, no. No, so you want to be able to succeed. And so, yeah, Anubis was, you know, a huge um, feature in ancient, in ancient Rome. And I also think today such a, a lovely symbol of kind of making sure that your heart weighs less than a feather or making sure you only do good. Ancient Egypt, you mean? Um, in ancient Egypt, yes. And then, I don't know, if you're weird like me and you also love ancient Egyptian things, maybe you, you think of that on a daily too. <laughs> <laughs> So that was in ancient Egypt. There were some other really cool psychopomps though throughout history that I wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. So in the uh, Parisian tradition, there was a god named Dina, and okay. it was um, the the soul guide. So again, the psychopomp that was meant to leave you uh, lead you to heaven. However, uh, it could appear to you in two forms. If you if you saw it appear to you as a beautiful young maiden. Uh, it was obviously telling you that you deserved to cross um, basically the golden bridge and it would guide you into the afterlife. So if you're dying, you see a beautiful woman, it's a good sign. However, if you're dying and a hideous old hag jumps out at you, you are not going to make it to the good place. <laughs> you are not crossing What if it was a bridge. sentimental old hag? No, old hags are not good, oh. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> This feels like the the rules of D and D. Do not trust an old hag. <laughs> uh, gagged, you fuck man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was that was one type of psychopomp, and either a beautiful lady or an old hag. In um, great 
Filipino culture, so ancestral spirits function as the psychopomps, so your past family members will function as your guide to the afterlife. And it's said that when a dying person um, is, is calling out to a specific soul guide, so they might be calling out to their parents, their partners, all deceased at this point, um, the spirits will then become visible to them, supposedly, and help them guide to the afterlife. Um, again, if you were not a good person, no one would come for you, which is it's not Aww. a good sign. Yeah. Everyone's like, I'm busy that day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> all your ancestors. All your ancestors are like, yeah, I'm busy that day. It's tax season. <laughs> tax season. Sorry. Couldn't guide you to the afterlife. <laughs> You are you are getting dangerously close to giving the date again. <laughs> I'm gonna give the date. I'm not revealing today's date. <laughs> okay, so um, I thought that was quite a lovely one of like someone you know guiding you to the afterlife. Um, this one I think is funny because it just feels like real life. So in some Korean mythology, uh, the principal figure of death is actually a ruthless bureaucrat. So, like, a paper pusher? Yeah. <laughs> what? So, basically, you die and you... The idea is that you get to this psychopomp who is literally, like, ticking, ticking boxes, stamping pages, like, making sure that you are meant to be in the good or the bad place. And he will... Wait, this is, like, Beetlejuice. Yeah, pretty much. The, like, this the also is, like, Dragon Ball Z, too. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> I love the, it. I love this idea of just someone who hates their nine to five and is like, uh, yeah, you made it to the good place. Come with me. Here's your key. Like, <laughs> good. Wait, in Dragon Ball Z, don't they like, doesn't everybody die? And that's why they need the Dragon Balls? Yes, but it's the the person who says if you go on to heaven or hell is, is, is a, uh, He's he's a bureaucrat. He's like sits at a desk. He's, yeah. Oh my. And like God. stamps the the things. He's he's a bureaucrat. Dragon Ball Z psychopomp. Exactly. I love it. I feel like because I I don't really believe too hard in an afterlife. I just think when we're gone, we're gone. But if I had to be escorted somewhere, I think I would like the the like comedic relief of seeing a bureaucrat <laughs> at a desk and having to wait in a line <laughs> to get processed. I think that would just sum up life really nicely. Yeah, it really would. <laughs> so I thought before I get on to death personification, I thought I would finish with um, another psychopomp, this time in Scandinavian Norse mythology. Okay. And this is, um, so it's the personification of death, but it, it serves as a psychopomp for guiding souls. And it comes in the shape of Hel, as in H-E-L, and it is the goddess of death mm. and ruler over the realm um, of death as well. So uh, what is amazing is back in the times of the Black Plague, which we're going to touch on a little bit in this, and we've touched on a bit in a previous episode when we are talking about plague doctors, uh, but Black Plague, death was everywhere. It was like a third of the population of Europe died from the Black Plague. You know, it was, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing death present in your life. And so in Scandinavia, they would often depict this idea artistically of death as, as an old woman uh, known by the name of Pasha. 
and she was known as the plague hag. We got another hag. <gasps> another hag. Ooh. Another hag. Another hag. She'd be wearing a black hood. And so she would go into town uh, carrying either a rake or a broom. And now this is where the good or the bad news came. If she was carrying a rake, some people would survive the plague. If she bought a broom, <gasps> everybody would die. That kind of makes Ooh. sense. There's spaces between a rake. Yeah. Like if she's like scooping up people, it's like, okay, some people are going to make it through. But if there's a broom, it's like, no, everybody's getting swept up. Yeah. I didn't even think of it like that. <laughs> it's very um, visual. But yeah. No broom. Everybody's we're sweeping out. We're making room for the new. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Speaking of, Jesus is a psychopomp, is he not? Yes. So in Christian religions, um, Jesus will act as, well, depending on your beliefs, because there's obviously so many different flavors of, of Christianity, but Jesus can act as the psychopomp of guiding you to the heavens, as well as I think it was St. Michael, possibly. Um, and then in other religions, uh, other Abrahamic religions as well. Um, so in Islam, I believe Muhammad can act as a psychopomp as well. So any of the saintly figures really can act as your guide to heaven um, in, in the Abrahamic religions. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that it's like in pop, arguably one of the more scarier moments of life. Like there's somebody who is important to you. Um, yeah, someone popping up to help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think I prefer to see Jesus, but I, if Jesus is going to come to me, I want him historically accurate. None of this white Jesus bullshit. <laughs> um, you're not the real Jesus. I, you're not the real Jesus. Yeah, uh, I would prefer that over the Grim Reaper. Really? And actually, no, I probably wouldn't. I've bloody love the grim reaper i think he's fabulous <laughs> i love it um, this is a good jump we can get into death personification now so okay. the idea of um both spiritually and kind of like socially picturing death as a human or death as a thing but also artistically how do we picture death and I think one of the best personifications of death is the Grim Reaper because it's just so present in most modern day ideas of if death is coming, the Reaper is coming, which mm. I love. <clears throat> and I don't know about you guys, but I love the Grim Reaper. Every type of like art or show or like type of impersonation or like where they represent him, I think he's just a good guy. He's always lots of fun <laughs> to watch as, <laughs> as an artistic display of death. I think it's quite fun. I'm certainly a huge fan of the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Me too. That was one of my favorite <laughs> shows when I was younger. Oh, it's so good. I've always been a little goth kid. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you guys, when do you reckon the Grim Reaper popped up in our history like at global history yeah hmm. i would guess it came from spain or mexico and i'm gonna guess 500 500 years ago or just 500 the year 500 the year 500 yeah what is that fifth century that would be sixth century sixth century okay okay good guess what about you, Drew? Do you think it's an ancient or a more modern thing? 
I was just going to say, like, it's interesting that um, in some, you know, sort of cultures, like they make room within Christianity for a particular saint to serve this purpose because not all branches of Christianity do I think that. It's really, really interesting. Um, another female personification of death or psychopomp was one of the examples from the ancient Aztecs as well. Um, and I can't, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name because I don't want to get it wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was the idea, the personification of death and the guide to the afterlife as well. And so this was back in the ancient times before there was Spanish influence on the South Americas, um, which I thought was fascinating as well, is that they had a female leading and in charge of death. Um, it was really, you know, mm. woke for the day. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting too <laughs> that this is something that seems common to the human condition like not wanting to go through this alone yeah it makes sense um Mm -hmm. but on that idea of that it's you know quite common to the human condition we do see huge amounts of different beliefs religions cultures believing in the idea of an afterlife or at least you know a guide to death you know some type of comfort during that time Um, But I also found, and I thought it was really fascinating, that there's some cultures that do not try personify death and do not explicitly even believe in the notion of an afterlife. So it just is kind of like when when you're dead, that's it. You're done. Like, okay, they're out of their body. They're they're gone. Um, And one example was the Hazda group from um, uh, one of the African, uh, from, from Africa. And they have no particular belief in an afterlife. And the death of an individual is as straightforward as just the end of their existence. So there's not a, wow. not a big show around it, not much worshipping of, you know, past ancestors and spirits because it's just, they're gone now. Which I think is a very, like, pragmatic wow. way to, to look at life. It's like, okay, they were here and now they're gone. It's sad, but... And difficult. Yeah. Very, very hard. If I was not raised in a culture that did that, I don't know that I could assimilate to a culture that does that. Yes. I was thinking about that. Like, I was thinking about when people, you know, go and maybe meet people from different cultures. How does that align with their own belief systems? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I thought that was quite quite interesting. And, and then finally, just a little teaser for some Alice After Dark content, which will be coming out on our Patreon when we launch it. <laughs> I did a little dabble into the wiki page hmm. for near-death studies. Oh, yeah. And it is amazing because it's not just um, physiologically and psychologically. Um, it's a whole heap of different different studies to do with what happens when you are dying or dead or, or other. Um, and, yeah, some, some fun things I found was, like, studies from people – who had to be um, resuscitated from cardiac arrest and who were clinically dead for a couple of minutes and things like that. And does consciousness just stop at the time of clinical death or, or not? Um, and I will save all of that research Ooh. for Alice After Dark. And if you'd like to hear it, you can go and sign up for our Patreon. When it launches. Hey, when it launches. When it launches. <laughs> Which hopefully it will be launched by the time this episode comes out. Okay. Oh, shit. If oh, shit. not, though... When it launches. <laughs> when Sarah launches it, I guess. <laughs> when Sarah gets her when Sarah gets her butt. <laughs> Drew and I will find out with you. <laughs> no, no. 
We're passive <laughs> observers here. That was that was gonna be our um our business after the show was to chat to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll just say you can go find it on the Patreon when it launches. Yeah, when it launches. Anyway. That oh was my, my death personification. Thank you for coming to my death talk. I love it. I love it. I love it. No, I love it more. <laughs> I love it exceptionally so. I think that is beautiful. Oh, I love you. thinking about death. Wow. I'm actually amazed how well all of our topics just like flowed into each other. That yeah, right? pretty <laughs> fucking awesome. We, we definitely have a, a brand and a vibe that we like. <laughs> I hope everybody here had as much fun as we did. Please, um, if it suits you, hang out with us on Twitter, hang out with us on TikTok or on Instagram. We would love to have your company, love to have your input. You can answer questions of the week if you want. You can just lurk. What? Apparently, there's going to be a Patreon if that's like your favorite means of communication. <laughs> um, and Drew is always elusive so really you can only hang out with me and sarah but come back next week if you want to hang out with drew thanks for hanging out with us and as always we love all of you thank you thank you bye-bye talking about the witch hole does it come out of i'm like oh